Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. In Phoenix Live View land, uh, they've made the decision to replace NProgress with TopBar. NProgress and TopBar, those are the small JavaScript libraries that render the progress bar, the loading bar, at the very top of your page. There were some uh, minor concerns about how NProgress could have been uh, freezing the browser painting process and, and having a white flash. So they replaced it with TopBar. One cool thing about TopBar is that uh, you don't have to include a CSS file anymore. So it's all in the JavaScript file. Uh, makes for a simpler setup. I've been doing that for all of my live view projects. So I've, I've had no issues with the uh, TopBar. So I'm glad to see the move. And December 8th marked the 20th anniversary of Erlang going open source. Erlang Solutions has written up a nice little tribute blog post with previously recorded interviews that include the late Joe Armstrong, along with uh, other creators of Erlang like Robert Verding and many other people were included as well. It's a, a great read just to kind of understand some of the history and the process that's brought Erlang to where it is today. I particularly am grateful that Erlang was open source 20 years ago because I don't think that the elixir that we love today could have existed any other way. A new case study has been added to the Elixir uh, website. Uh, this company uh, that they're highlighting this time is Duffel. In Duffel, they create an API-first experience for other companies who want to operate like a travel agency. Uh, this can include large corporations managing travel arrangements in-house, or it could be just like a, a small travel agency who wants to get started. Uh, and they would use Duffel to manage connecting to all the different data sources and, and airlines. So interesting company. And also just great progress on showing like the success of Elixir being adopted out in the public uh, in, in a variety of fields. Uh, give it a read. And Elixir received a small PR that does a general improvement to the way EEX templates are giving feedback to developers. Uh, specifically, this sets out to help with if blocks in EEX templates. So if you've ever done an if block and included like an if do, and if you forgot to put the equal sign at the entry point to the EEX interpolation, and you wondered why it didn't render what you thought it would do, this will really help people catch that. Because I've, I've seen people coming new to Elixir and the Phoenix space, and this can be something simple that just trips them up. So this just gives some general improvement to the compiler error warnings that give the developer some more instructive feedback. It's just a, a nice improvement. I wonder, I know this is bad practice, but... I've done this where I've intentionally not used the equal signs just to set up like a smaller variable for something as I loop through it or something in the in the in the template. That's a good point because you know describing code audibly is just always challenging, especially for the you dear listener trying to understand what the heck I'm trying to say. So check out the PR because they have some demonstrations of how this is used and they do actually account for that where they say, you know, when you do want to have something that just generates a side effect by assigning a variable, here's how you would do that. So it still allows for that. Cool. All right. And lastly, Jeff Zavalim wrote up a great blog post on his process for debugging and writing three PRs to Erlang and OTP. Um, I thought it was really interesting. It's a deep post. Uh, so if you're interested in how like the inner workings of Erlang and profiling and debugging happen, uh, check out this post. This is a great insight into Jose's process, but also the collaboration of the two communities and projects, Elixir and Erling. At the end of all of those PRs, we, uh, we get better uh, improved performance. So good wins there. That's it for the news. Today, we are excited to be joined by Zach Daniel. Zach has been working on the Ash framework for some time, and which is a really interesting thing. And I've been seeing a lot about this 
with progress that's being made and discussion online. And we had Zach come on to help us understand more about what this is and how it can benefit us with our Elixir applications. So before we jump into that, first, Zach, thanks for coming to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So Zach, maybe you can first tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you live and what kind of work you do. Absolutely. Uh, So I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, nice and sunny. I've been uh, working with Elixir for about five years now. So I'm kind of on the longer end for a language this young. Right now, I work at a company called Variance, uh, where we're building something that is very exciting. It's a challenge to the way that digital adoption and documentation are done today. So if you have a team that needs to share any kind of process or information, I can pretty much guarantee that without Variance, you're doing it wrong. So you should you know, check us out at Variance.com for more info. It's very interesting. It's uh, V-A-R-I-A-N-C-E.com. All right, Zach. Now, when we start talking about Ash Framework, maybe you can just give us a little overview about what it is and kind of what it does. Ash is a declarative resource-oriented application framework. I think that needs a little bit of unpacking. Uh, we can start with declarative, uh, which refers to declarative design. And the classic one-liner to explain declarative design is describing what you want to happen as opposed to how you want it to happen. And I think it's easier to grok when you kind of put it in the context of some examples that we're all familiar with. Both SQL and HTML are declarative languages. So you don't describe how to render an HTML page nor how to read data out of your SQL database. You simply describe the effect that you want and the tooling behind it takes care of producing that result. So that is the same behavior that that Ash tries to emulate. For resource-oriented, that refers to the fact that an Ash application is composed primarily of resources. There are other building blocks, but a resource describes some piece of state or a concept and uh, gives you actions over that concept or state. So a simple resource might back a database table, but you could also use a resource to wrap an API or to represent a task queue or kind of really anything that you can imagine doing things with. And an application framework is an important distinction as well. In in Ash, your application isn't tied to any one access layer. And so for that reason, it isn't a web framework, even though the interface extensions that are being worked on are currently web interfaces. So that's the focus, right? JSON API, GraphQL, that kind of thing. But very much on the roadmap are things like, you know, CLIs, that kind of thing. So it's not necessarily meant to only target the web. So are there other frameworks that are similar to Ash? What does it most closely resemble? to what, what's already out there? That's a great question. And I don't, I don't see many open source frameworks that really resemble Ash that much, right? Like declarative design is not something new to, you know, that's been around for, you know, 40 plus years. And, but what I find interesting is the things that most resemble Ash are actually things you typically have to pay for. So something like Hasura or like a, a, one of the million APIs as a services out there where you sort of declare the service area of your API and it sort of manages how you store it and builds an API for you, right? And that's typically like a paid service. Kind of like code, uh, no code kind of services like that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? And I find a lot of value in those concepts. However, I think what you find if you ask, especially any sort of senior engineer or anything like that, they're going to tell you like, I didn't go that route because... I know that I'm going to need to do something goofy at some point. So I didn't feel like I should use that, right? Yeah. I think probably the biggest challenge facing any no-code tool like that is just that mindset, right? Like the general understanding that things get weird in software development and that you can't just rely on like a simple paradigm to serve your entire application, right? I think sort of Ash is partly a response to that problem, which is that I think that they have the right idea. And I think that you should build your systems declaratively, but you also need... I think you need to be in a context where you're the one, you're the powerful one, right? Like you still want to be deploying an application to somewhere, right? 
And you still want to have all of the rest of the great tools in that ecosystem, right? So Ash and Phoenix play great together. Ash and Absinthe play great together. There's no reason not to put, you know, 70% or even, you know, 5% of your application is in, as Ash resources and the rest doing something else, right? So I think it's really powerful to have that same sort of declarative designed API or, you know, resources, uh, but still have the full power of the Elixir ecosystem to call on when you need it. So it sounded like there you're saying that you really can mix and match. Like I can have Ash cover this portion of my application's interface or interactivity with other services, but I can do other more custom stuff right alongside it. And I there's no real conflict there. Is that right? Yeah, I think generally, there will be some sort of a, adapting code that you may end up needing to write primarily because like if you're using Ecto resources, a common practice today is, you know, Ecto resources in your Phoenix context will or Ecto schemas will relate to schemas in other contexts and things like that. In all reality, Ash resources create an Ecto schema as well. So you can relate to them and you can read them using Ecto, right? So, you know, you can just say repo.get or whatever, and read your Ash resources as well. But I would say like, the best way to mix and match would be to use to power a, like a one context or, you know, like, a, like the entire surface area of a specific context with Ash and integrate by calling into that Ash API. But and I mean, I think the, the place where it's really good for interop is that you just put a forward call in your Phoenix router, for example, and it forwards some routes to your automatically generated Ash API. And you're free at any point to intercept any or all of that and change, you know, like kind of call into whatever code you want. It doesn't really matter, right? So it's very much designed to be a good citizen uh, in that regard. And I mean, we already have an amazing web framework. We have an amazing GraphQL engine. Like there's no point in rewriting all of those things. So uh, Ash is kind of on purpose implemented to plug into those. And eventually I think that as we add more and more to the framework itself, there will be uh, entry points that don't need that, right? Like, so you'll be able to just say like mix ash.new and get the GraphQL thing, but you'll always be able to sort of escape hatch and like just declare your own absence schema or declare your own router, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that is important interrupt. So maybe you could give us a little bit of background about how you got started with this. Like what was the problem that you were seeing? You're like, I have this idea. I think this could really help. So it actually started as a, as a work project. I was working at a company called Albert, uh, Albert.io. It's an ed tech company and there was some really great people there. And we, we, that was actually where I started on Elixir uh, as well. And we had just a big conversation. We redesigned a, a Node and uh, Rethink DB application to a Elixir and Postgres application. We started talking about, you know, what kind of API were we going to build? Were we going to build a JSON API or were we going to build a GraphQL API? And we ended up going with JSON API. And in retrospect, I don't think that was the right call. I think like what we liked about it is that it was easier to develop for a, a JSON API, right? Like, and uh, some of the client libraries that our, our front-end people were using were kind of plug and play in that regard. But we ended up kind of recreating a lot of what GraphQL already did because just our design sensibilities line up so well in that regard, right? So we were auto-scaffolding front-end models and that kind of thing from the specifications that we built. But because we all, I think, had a very declarative design mindset, we started building something because we were building a JSON API, right? A resource-based API that can include related data and all that stuff. We built something very similar to what Ash looks like today, although much more like specifically tailored to what we were doing, right? So there it, there was no like use a different database concept or anything like that. It was all Postgres, you know. But what we found is our velocity was just huge designing a system that way, right? Because all you had to do is add a feature in mind for like a single resource, right? The ability to full text search a resource by configuring the columns that are a full text search, 
call them, something like that, right? Like, and then all of a sudden somebody's like, hey, we need to we need to include you know whatever in full text search, and it's like, yeah, well, we wrote that in the abstract for a resource, so I can just we'll use it over there also. And you know, we had that same sort of front end model scaffolding would grow as our API capabilities would grow, right? And so they can say things, you know, in a in an auto generated client like you know, some resource dot get by ID dot save, right? And this was all something that was easy. We were building a company at the same time as we were making these stuff, this stuff. So you like, you know, it's an efficient way to build systems if you can build the abstract and the specific at the same time. So yeah, that was just, it was a really powerful system. It was a pleasure to work with. Basically, I just couldn't stand not having that. So I kept going to, you know, new jobs and I would rewrite the same stuff, right? I would rewrite, how do you filter? How do you sort? Now we need to paginate, right? And it was always like a little different but only because we didn't start from the same place. I just, I've always found myself like, I want that tool set again, right? So the way it actually kind of got started as, as like, I would put my foot down, I'm doing this, right? I'm just going to make this thing again, basically. It was, uh, I was working at Dockyard and uh, a guy, Andrew Callahan, a uh, great guy. He, he gave a talk at one of our retreats on, on migrating a Rails JSON API to a uh, Elixir JSON API. And he showed a bunch of, uh, you know, interesting code that was all about filtering JSON APIs and sort of complex filters and how do you, you know, how do you build that? And I just thought to myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I wrote the best version. That's a little bit, that's a little bit proud, but I wrote a great (laughs) version of how to filter data from a JSON API already. That code exists in the world, but like, I couldn't just tell him to use it because it was lock, you know, lock and key somewhere else. So that night him and I caught up and we spent like six hours just talking about this idea and what it should look like and why what he was doing should have been easier. Just kind of sharing ideas and all that. And it was actually the name Ash was his idea. And it's great because it's a very short name to type, which I think is a huge, uh, huge winner there. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, that's how it got started as like an official project in its own right. Not just sort of ideas kicking around in my head for my years of being bitter for not having that system available <laughs> to me. I will say that I, I've been in that same place where it's like, you know, I've built the, you know, trying to build generic reusable tooling around sorting and filtering. And, you know, it's like, and, and it, it is, it's kind of, it does vary. And it's kind of locked into this project. And it's like, well, maybe I can bring that out because it's completely independent and I can try and reuse it over here. But it is kind of like continually reinventing it. So that is an yep. interesting idea that you're like, hey, you know, let's, let's just solve this. Have you heard of ex-admin or Talon or active admin? active admin like from rails days yeah absolutely yeah so that's what's going into my head for this kind of stuff though uh, because it's very convention uh, or configuration you know and convention i guess um and and i don't know the status of x admin or talon at this point i think their repos are haven't been touched in a couple years now but they solve similar problems for for those projects, those kind of projects that use it, it's like, yeah, I, I just need a, a resource here and I need to be able to filter it in this way. But I never felt like I still own the code. <laughs> I felt like I was definitely developing in, you know, active admin. I'll just use that um, as the example. I was just developing active admin stuff. It was a huge DSL that was a bit more lock in, at least that's the way I felt. Well, how does Ash, you know, separate itself from that feeling? Well, I think that there is going to be some of that feeling, right? Because it's it's a pattern unto itself. It, it is a huge DSL, right? Resources are are one big DSL, and the, the idea is to have a you know sort of a, a paradigm for everything. Ultimately, I think like I've seen solutions like this before, and they don't they aren't ambitious enough. I think realistically, right? The problem like, you can't half 
do this kind of thing, right? Like you can't, like what's a what's a good example, right? Like if you want them to have their own data storage layer, right? Like provide all of your own Ecto schemas, right? And then what you do is just sits on top of that to give you capabilities over it. You are going to reach a disconnect. That was how Ash was originally, right? I was like, okay, I'll use their Ecto schemas and I'll add resources as like an abstraction on top of that, right? And I was sort of consistently hamstrung by the interface to those Ecto schemas, right? And what I found is you just have to be ambitious as like designing this framework. You have to say, okay, I think I can do everything. Like I think from top to bottom that I can take your API request and I can get the data, right? And I can do all of that for you. And you are right. And at some point you're basically writing in the Ash framework language Mm -hmm. to some degree. But what I also found is it like not trying to half do it, it removes so many roadblocks that would have been there before, right? And and as a consequence to that is when I add some of these features that I've been really looking forward to building, you know, since I started this thing, like the, the really cool stuff, it's like fully integrated, right? It, you can't, there's some things you just couldn't do unless you do it this way, right? Like the migration generator, I think is a, is a good one, which we'll probably kind of talk about a little bit later. I, and I think the, the important thing I would say is that Ash is meant to be fully extendable and customizable, right? So even though you will be writing Ash, you can actually define uh, just using like a, basically a list of structs, your own segment of the DSL. So if you're building something that maybe has a caching layer that behaves differently than any other thing, right? You can define an Ash extension. There's documentation on how to do that on the site. And you can say like, well, I need my you know resources that are cacheable need to have maybe, I don't know, a Redis table name and the configuration for TTL, right? It's your own thing, right? And that will all be available in the normalized standard DSL. So it'll be consistent. It will work. It'll be configurable. Any, any part of any option in the DSL can also be replaced by config in you know, your application config. So if you need a runtime, determine what the table for your cache is or whatever, right? It gets like all of those benefits. You're touching on some of like the project's goals here. And I see that you have like the Ash doctrine. Like, could you just tell us what, what that is? Because that might be a good, a good direction to go there. The Ash Doctrine, I think it, it's a set of principles, really. Doctrine is maybe a heavy word, but I just I, I went <laughs> with it and I've got a lot of things to do, so I'm not going to think about a better word. <laughs> but uh, the idea is what principles were, were making this a successful project, and I wanted to sort of codify those. So there, there are four. There's configuration over convention, declarative over procedural, extend over customize, and derive over handwrite. And, and these are, I think, primarily just the way to describe declarative design, you know, like this is how to do good declarative design in general. And I think configuration over convention is, it's almost first to show people that like, I'm not trying to rebuild active record, right? Like, like, yeah, this is in charge of of fetching your data, but like, there's, there's really not magic here, right? Like it, it is actually, I think a lot more straightforward than one might think. The whole, the whole idea is not to just make a bunch of assumptions. Like if, if we need to know something, it will be configured. And we're not going to like assume because of where you put something or because of how you name something that it's going to behave a certain way, right? Like that's right. just not the way that I like to build things. So, And declarative over procedural, it means leveraging declarative design to create smarter systems. There's two components to a good system, in my opinion, a declaratively designed system, which is the declaration and the engine, right? And splitting your application up into those two things will have far-reaching benefits. So specifically, it makes it easier to talk about and understand change. So when you're trying to say like, what needs to change? You can say, do we need to, do we need to change the engine, right? Do we need to change how we're doing our sort of commands? Or do we need to change the language we're using to, you know, to describe this stuff, right? So that part 
what you'll find is business people and non-technical people can contribute, right? They can look at that stuff and they can say, hey, I see, you know, you've got a thing with like a, a you know, this is a start date and that's allowed to be empty, right? But like that can't, that doesn't make sense. We need a start date, right? So they can talk about changes to this description. And the other thing is that anything can read back that description to understand its own context, right? So when you're executing some code, it can go back to the thing that, you know, to the sort of resource or declaration or whatever its description is. And it can ask for more information to behave smarter, right? Like that being static means it's readable by the rest of your system, right? You don't, you aren't isolated to just sort of like what your inputs are. You can ask, you know, more questions about the operation that you're doing. And then we get back to, I think, what kind of originally brought this up, which is extend over customize. I think the big thing there is, it doesn't make sense that we could build a framework that does literally everything, right? Like that's not reasonable. So the idea is to have very much a priority is to extend Ash with your own uh, DSL sections, your own, you know, there's different kinds of extensions you can write. There's authorizers, there's notifiers and uh, adding more all the time. And I think this also has a nice uh, benefit of, en of enabling other people to release extensions, right? Like to sort of take over portions of what the framework does and man the guns there because, you know, I'm one person. so. Can't do everything. And the last is derive over handwrite. Uh, and I think this one, this one kind of speaks for itself, right? It, if you're handwrite, if you could derive it, but you handwrite it, you're just wasting time. And deriving also, it keeps your system correct on, in the long term, right? So, uh, you know, if you've used nimble options or any of those examples where you can sort of derive the documentation from the actual code that does the validation, if you change the validation rules, the documentation updates automatically and it can't get out of date. So, right. uh, yeah, we extend that to the whole framework, essentially. So you kind of coming back to this idea of the, I can do everything, you know, but well, not really, but you know, the, that idea is I, I saw this Twitter post that you'd made about you were starting to get multi-tenancy support. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to kind of just realize like, oh, this is, this is actually trying to be ambitious. That's where I kind of got that sense. You've already mentioned that you have support for REST APIs. You have support for GraphQL APIs. Maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview of... like, Because there are a number of sub-projects that Ash is made up of. So maybe you can kind of just talk through a little bit about... One, maybe we could just start with the multi-tenancy support. Because that sounds like a very interesting and challenging feature to try and build. It does sound like it, but... I did it in like three days because I, I have the control. Like I, you know, I mean, like I own the whole stack. I don't need to like add a bunch of integration points or anything like that. So it was easier than it than I thought it was going to be. Also, but ultimately, you declare resources as you know, I am a multi-tenant resource, right? Which sort of says I exist in you know multiple tenants. You can also declare a strategy, like I am uh, multi-tenant via an attribute, right? So maybe you have organization ID on a resource, or you can say I'm multi-tenant via context. And that means that the data layer, right? Because you can, you could, there's only one, well, actually there's four data layers, but the biggest one that you would use to build an actual application is the Postgres one. Uh, but you can also write your own, right? Much, it's a lot easier than writing like a, say an Ecto adapter, for example. That's saying that the data layer is going to take over this thing and understand what it means to be, you know, multi-tenant, right? So if I had multi-tenancy support to say Ash CSV, then that would probably be storing, you know, multiple files for each organization ID or something along those lines which I'm not going to do that because somebody else can do that. And then, you know, what I find is it was just, it was actually very easy to extend that behavior to the rest of the system, right? You just need to say set tenant on the query to say what the tenant is. And we carry it through to all of your various resources as you sideload data and all that. You can also have like non-multi-tenant resources, right? So you can like 
if, if they're not if they're not multi-tenant resources, then it's going to join back to the you know just whatever you know your public schema, and then you can go like back out, right? So like you 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 don't have like it's actually less limiting, right? Than than your sort of general assumptions because you're declaring that uh, multi-tenancy behavior on the resource. What was really great to see about that was the the migration generator really got to shine in that regard because it's actually pretty difficult to write migrations for multi-tenant database uh, setups, especially if you have portions of your application that are not multi-tenant. And so it, it does smart things for you, like right off the bat, for example, it, it knows you need to prefix, you know, you need to prefix prefix your unique identities with or unique uh, indexes with the name of the the schema that you're making that identity and otherwise you're going to have name conflicts. It also knows that that you can actually foreign key from the tenant. So if you have a resource that is related to another resource and they're both in Postgres, uh, you can foreign key to the public schema, right? But not the other way around. And it'll actually warn you. It'll say like, hey, just letting you know, you've declared that this resource in the public schema is related to a, a multi-tenant resource that is not global as in it doesn't have a public schema version as well, right? And so I didn't actually make a foreign key because that's not realistic, it's not possible. It understands attribute multi-tenancy when making its foreign keys, and so it'll make composite foreign keys. So if you say two resources are multi-tenant via the organization ID, it will say uh, references this other resource with organization ID equals that organization ID, right? And so now you have a composite foreign key, which will perform actually much better than the you know alternate version. And, you know, attribute uh, multi-tenancy will be included in unique indexes, right? So if you say uh, email is unique on users that are in a attribute multi-tenant users table, then the email will be declared as unique only for that organization ID, right? So you get a composite unique index, all that kind of stuff. You get all of that by just saying mix ash, uh, ash postgres.generate migrations. And it writes out standard actor migrations that you can change and edit and, you know, do whatever you want with. I, I really like seeing that particular feature set shine uh, as I added multi-tenancy. Well, just to finish out this idea of where the ASH framework fits and what it's a good solution for, like when someone comes to you and they're kind of describing a situation or a problem that they have, what is a good situation that they might, like a developer might find themselves in where you'd say, oh, this is a good situation to use ASH? Is there like certain situations where like, ah, this is ideal. And there's maybe some others that it's not the perfect fit for just to kind of help when we're trying to evaluate new technologies, you know, how can I decide where this is good for me? There's definitely one where I think it's a no brainer, right? If you are making like a sort of no frills CRUD API, just use Ash. It's easy. It takes like 15 minutes, right? You can create like seven resources and they're all related and you get a JSON API or a GraphQL out of them for free, right? So like, Worst case scenario, you wasted 15 minutes if you like try it out and it doesn't do what you want it to do. For me, Ash is definitely like a, a very easy starting point because it's so quick to create these kinds of things. Like I don't, there's it's very low cost. But I would also say, you know, some stuff I didn't really touch on is like the the policy authorizer, right? Ash has like a very rich underlying policy access system that is really smart. And so like the things that you might feel are difficult about these data access libraries, like, okay, but now I need to authorize access. And it's like, well, it's in charge of fetching my data. So like, where do I do that? Right. But Ash supports like a, like really complicated policies, however complicated you need to get. And they're actually like, they are transpiled to a Boolean statement and passed to a C satisfiability solver that will determine from like the outset constraints, whether or not your request will ever actually be possible. Right. So like if you're only allowed to see a user with ID one, because that's you, right? Like you're saying the user ID has to match the current user's ID for you to read that user. 
if you're saying give me a give me the user with ID two, that's included in the constraints as like a, a fact. And it's saying like, well, it's not possible for you to ever do this because your user ID is one, right? So we don't even try to get data from the database. Like it's a really smart authorization system. I would say like, don't shy away because you're convinced you won't be able to do the things you want to do uh, when you're building an API with this. There's complex validations, constraints, uh, all that kind of stuff. And it's pretty easy to do. But I would say if you're building an API, just start with Ash and see what happens. You know, like you you probably won't want to stop because you just, it goes so much faster. That's great. Well, thank you for uh, giving some insight into how we can evaluate this as a technology. And I, I really like the idea of just saying, you know, just give this a shot on a new project. You know, 15 minutes of time, you'll have a pretty good sense of what this is doing for you. Yeah. So you also talked about a number of different projects that are part of the Ash framework, kind of whole umbrella of projects. And like one of them, you know, that there's Postgres support, uh, that there's a JSON API, there's a GraphQL API, and Policy Authorizer is another one. And, and there's CSV, you know, for getting uh, data, accessing that way. I guess before we jump into any of the specifics on these, this seems like a lot for one person to be pushing forward. Are there other people who are contributing and helping out? Is there a team that's kind of been building up? And are you looking for people to help contribute? So yeah, since I gave a talk at ElixirConf, um, it's not released yet. Those, those talks haven't come out publicly. But more and more people have been getting on board, uh, even you know, from small contributions have been getting on board. And you know, more people have been repeat contributors, right? Uh, people have been writing tests and documentation and some have been you know, ideas, but there's also been quite a few uh, features and fixes that have been contributed by the community, which is just awesome. And I won't do names because I doubt that I will get them right. And I only have GitHub handles anyway. So maybe they're just like, I don't know, fake names. So I'm, you know, but I, I regularly tweet about community contributions on the Ash Twitter, which is something that I've found is a great way to build your community, right? Like I think a little bit of public recognition for people who work on on a project goes a very long way. And I've noticed that like people come back, right? If you show that you appreciate what they do and you tweet about it. So yeah, I've, there's quite a few people contributing now. You can see it on the GitHub project and it's been it's been really nice. I like that tip though, just to, you know, acknowledge and appreciate the people who are contributing. Yeah. So maybe you can mention a couple of these sub-projects and maybe uh, help us understand anything else you'd like to say about them. So Ash GraphQL is essentially a GraphQL plugin right? Or an absent plugin, I mean, that you pointed out your resources, which are configured with like, here's the resource actions I want to expose over the, the GraphQL. And it will automatically create all the types and the fields in your GraphQL for those resources. And because it creates the types, you can actually refer to those types and resolve to Ash data types from your own resolvers. If your only part of your API is, is Ash, right? You can make your own resolvers that say they return the Ash resource types and that all works. A lot of smart stuff there, like automatically creating enums for for fields that have an atom type field that have a one of constraint, right? Like it just kind of like making a good API for you there. Ask JSON API, JSON API, it says, you know, it's the a spec compliant JSON API is the goal there, which is harder than it sounds actually. Like I just I just had to spend like two hours working on like content type negotiation because that was not not doing the right thing. And Ash CSV was I don't really ever want to use it, right? Like I don't like because I don't want to back my like important production data with the CSV file, but it was an important proof of concept of the idea that you could, right? Like I needed to prove that the the data layer behavior could be extended out to even things like, you know, writing to a file, a raw file, right? And so it, it's got configuration like the delimiter and you can actually lock it, right? Like using, uh, I think it uses process group. I forget what it uses, but you know, you can lock that file and all that kind of stuff. So that was mostly an academic exercise. And it works really well. So, I mean, you know, maybe somebody will be tempted, but I wouldn't do it. 
Ash example, you can, that's a, just a decent example. It's a little help desk system written in Ash. Ash Phoenix is one of the newest, it is the newest project. I think that UI is actually not out of the scope of this project, right? Like deriving UI components and using some configuration to determine, you know, what that looks like in the styling and all that kind of stuff is not outside of the scope. It's just very far in the future, you know? But uh, so I, I wrote a set of utilities and they're still sort of in progress uh, for Ash Phoenix, like one that will let you say form four and provide like a resource and an action. And it will generate a form that's, you know, complies with the validations and pushes all that up to client side validations and all that kind of stuff. And there's also like a, uh, a keep live utility for providing an Ash query, which is very similar to an Ecto query, just a little bit sort of reoriented around resources. Um, you provide an Ash query and you say like, keep the data in this query up to date as, as it changes. And you then you subscribe to, you can use notifier extensions to publish, to broadcast changes to your resources, right? And so you say, uh, keep this live. And as it changes, it will uh, update the data according to your configuration, right? So you can actually do like a live paginated view, which is like harder than I thought when I was going, when I was going into it. It was very difficult to do that. Um, but you, you, it, you can configure it not to take things off of the page, right? Only update sort of attributes are on there or like, you know, add things to the end of the page, but don't like actually remove anything. All that kind of like really complicated stuff. Uh, you can do with that. So it's still very much in its infancy. So I would love people to work on it, but I would not suggest using it right now. Finally, uh, Ash Policy Authorizer, we talked about that. I think it's the hidden gem of the Ash ecosystem, if I'm being honest. Like it took a really long time to write and a lot of blood, sweat and tears went into it, getting it wrong and figuring it out again. And like just transpiling value filter statements into Boolean statements is, I did not realize is like a white paper level <laughs> endeavor, you know, um, it's, it was pretty wild. But it has like some crazy features, like like uh, you can put it on a, on uh, the access type. You can be set to filter, whereby you just won't ever see data that your user, that your policies don't let you see, right? So if you say like, you know, if you're an admin, you can't see this data. You just never will, right? Like, and it will embed it all in the queries before sending them to the data letter. So they're not going to be. It's not going to be done like slowly or strangely. You're not going to get a 404 when you should have got a 403 or vice versa. That extension is definitely my baby. It sounds like. Ash Policy Authorizer is a very powerful feature, like with all the logic that you're describing and everything. It sounds like it's pretty tied into the Ash framework, and it, you couldn't really extract that out just to say, oh, well, I want to be able to describe my policies and be able to have some kind of evaluation of that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You couldn't do it. But there is a way to kind of do it, right? Specifically, I don't have support for it right now, but it very much on the docket is just sort of like resources with a functional uh, data layer, right? So like you say, if I cr creating one means this, call this function, right? And updating one means call this function, right? And you can also have resources backed by no data layer, right? So you could just use, say, you know, use policies to describe what it means to create a thing and then say, create one, right? And it will just return a struct. That's all it does. So you could use policies to describe the behavior of an action, call into your resource to see if the user can, right? And then proceed with your own life doing it how you would want to do it. Right. So, yeah, it is possible to sort of reuse it, but it will need to be in the context of a resource. Interesting. Well, I also saw that you have a GitHub sponsor page for your efforts. Uh, is that something that people can help do and help support this effort and this project? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my time investment to this project has been insane. My family and friends are annoyed. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, well over, you know, well over a thousand hours, probably like closer to 1500 at this point, just like poured into getting this right and rewriting all the various pieces. So yeah, I mean, sponsoring is a great way to kind of keep this all going because it does take a lot out of me. 
But with that said, I don't want people to sponsor that are just kind of trying it out. Like the goal is to get sponsors that are getting value out of Ash, right? Like if you're building something and it's working, if it's like, you know, if it's actually saving you time and money, then I think, yeah, you, you know, feel free to sponsor, right? But don't sponsor just because you want to use it someday and you want me to keep going, right? Because I'm going to keep going. It's going to happen, right? So I, that's kind of my advice. Is I, I don't I don't want people to feel like they need to for the project to continue. I just I want to give people that find value in Ash a way to give back. So we kind of touched on this topic of contributions. Are you looking for people to actively be involved, and is there a, a place for someone to start? Uh, like, are there any issues that are outstanding where you say, "Hey, this is a good one for people looking for something." Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff marked as like help wanted or good first issue. I think I use those tags interchangeably, which is. Um, not the right way to do it, but feel free to look around. There's lots of issues like that. And at the same time, I'm accessible. We have a Discord channel for uh, Ash. It's listed on the community page on our website. You can reach me whenever, pretty much. And if you're just looking for some way to contribute, we can have a conversation and like find what interests you, right? Like You, you don't have to fix bugs that I wrote. You can write your own stuff. You can write your own extensions. You can you know, come up with your own ideas in that regard. And I will like help you make that a reality, right? I think it, it takes it takes somebody on the core team helping to, to make that work. So yeah, please contribute. You know, this is this this only really works when people try to use it and find shortcomings and then add them back to the framework. That's how this all goes, right? So uh, I would love to have more people on board. So so barring any contributor surprises, uh, what what do you think is next on the horizon for for Ash? What's the next big thing there? What are you excited about for it? Well, right now, the idea is that we're going to, it's in alpha or beta or whatever you want to call it. And I'm looking to target a stable release by like Q1 of next year. So really next on the horizon is just fixes and tests. Because even though it's not immediately obvious when you look at some parts of the documentation, it does like a lot. So there's not really that, there's not a whole bunch of features I really feel the need to add right now. I think probably one thing that it will be a little bit of a side project for a while that I want to get out is a, an admin UI, right? Like automatically derived from your resources. It'll be more powerful than most admin UIs you're used to because it'll be a context aware of your actions that you can perform on your resource, right? Like it'll understand there is like a delete action. So there'll be a delete button, right? And it'll have masquerading. So you can say like a delete as this user, right? Like that kind of stuff. That's, I would say, you know, midterm, maybe three or four months to probably have that done. But long-term, there's uh, ideas for a policy-based test harness that I've been kicking around for a long time that I think is really fascinating, right? Instead of test coverage, you have real use cases coverage right? Like these combinations of state going into a request will be allowed to proceed and like do the request itself. And you can actually construct a test file that says, tell me how to set up all of those conditions that that I know about in my policies. And then uh, we'll run those tests and see like, can you actually do it? And what happens when you do? And you can assert on the results, that kind of stuff. And then UI stuff is really the pie in the sky, long-term stuff. That's interesting. Because I can see the value what you're describing is when the system, when you're able to describe this system in a declarative way, where it's not like trying to understand and reverse engineer code, which is instructive, where it's declarative, you can infer a lot more and kind of know a lot more about the system. So I could even see a potential where you talked about UI is not out of the question. It's like, hey, well, maybe I can make even a live view UI for this resource and just being able to build things out that way. I think that's really, really interesting. It's exciting. We're coming up on our time. Is there anything else you want to mention or talk about that we haven't covered? We didn't really touch on uh, aggregates and calculations, which is a common uh, source of hesitance to use a, a tool like like Ash, which is like, well, what about 
derived information of my resources and stats and whatnot, right? Like, what about what about that? Um, but those facilities exist, and they're they're really they will need a lot of work when people start really using them, right, and hammering on them because like there's only account aggregate, but I can add whatever one anybody wants, you know. So like there's still stuff to do, but it does things really, I think, in a very smart way. Specifically, it will embed the aggregate in the query if you want to filter or sort on it. Otherwise, it will run it asynchronously alongside the query for performance reasons. And, you know, we'll eventually want sort of configuration or ways to say, like, well, not for this one or whatever. So if you've got, like, a count of open tickets for your representative's resource, right, uh, if they say, load this field and filter on it being greater than 10, then it will join to it'll do a lateral join to that actual aggregate in the database and filter on that value and if you don't it will not do a lateral join it'll wait for the ids from the first query which will make your aggregate it very fast and it'll run it asynchronously along with any side loads are doing right so your overall request time stays constant but you or well you know gets faster and uh, that's again one of the benefits of like the system being declaratively told what it needs to do as opposed to being told how to do it I would say that's kind of the only real big feature that we didn't chat about that I think I would like people to know. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about the project or connect with you online, what's the best way to do that? The community page on our website has pretty much all the links there. You can feel free to make issues on GitHub, reach out to me on Discord. I'm also on the Elixir Slack. You can tweet at me or at Ash Framework. I'm very accessible because I want to hear from you. So there's a lot of different ways to go about it and any of them are acceptable. Awesome. Well, thank you, Zach, for sharing all this information, but also the investment of time that you put into this and making it open source, you know, because you do talk about how a lot of these types of features are typically commercial and paid for. So I appreciate the effort that you've put into making it something that we can all benefit from. And I think it's a great idea to just, hey, I've got an idea for a little project. Let me see if I can just make Ash leverage that as a tool to really get me a lot further, a lot faster and see if I don't get those same time gains that you're talking about. So thank you very much. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Hey, if you are newer to Elixir and want to get some extra practice and a more thorough understanding of pattern matching, check out my free pattern matching course at thinkingelixir.com.